Please turn to Acts chapter 23 with me as we, Lord willing, finish up this chapter this morning. As you turn there, you may have noticed that uh, next week and the following week we'll be doing some care group signups, and you can start participating in a care group at any time, but there'll be some signups uh, over the next uh, few weeks, and I just encourage you to, to be a part of, of a care group. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you to be able to be cared for, have people know what's going on in your life, and also to care for others. I know this this last year, as, as we went through some health problems, it was in, in just very uh, beneficial to have a, a group of people that were aware of what was going on. I mean, I, I feel pretty connected to the church. I feel like we're, our family's pretty connected to the church life, uh, and yet still it was, it was nice to have people that were aware and, and felt some, some responsibility to, to coordinate care for us, and just huge benefit. And so I encourage you to, to think about uh, signing up for care groups uh, in the few, next few weeks as we enter into that time of our, our church life. Acts chapter 23, Paul has just been rescued yet again by the uh, Tribune, and we come to chapter 23, verse 12. And if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush by him, for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the, their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and 
brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Father, we are grateful to you for the opportunity to gather as your people, to sing, to be able to, to pray together, and now to, to turn our attention to your word, to study it more closely. Uh, give us your ability to understand it and to, to learn from it. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Our, one of our kids had lost their cell phone recently, and I, I tried calling it and uh, heard a, a buzzing sound and, and found the phone and, and, and picked it up and saw that they had saved my contact name in their phone. And it said, uh, cool dad, heart, slash, get things done guy. Which I took as a compliment because dads, you have to, right? You have to just choose to take things as a compliment sometimes. Get things done guy. But I also felt a little bit convicted uh, because I know that my desire to get things done can sometimes uh, put a little bit of a strain on family relationships, right? I, I'm a guy who has a, a to-do list, and, and I want to get everything on that to-do list checked off. And, and maybe you're like me in this way. I, I see some people nodding and smiling, and, and you know, nodding their heads and smiling a little bit here, so you can identify with this. At the end of every week, I'll sit down and plan out the next week, and I'll have this, this list of things that need to get done, and I'll realize there's, there's no way that it is humanly possible for me to accomplish all these things. And then I'll say, well, what do I take off? And then I'll think, well, maybe. You know, maybe I can get it done. And just, things hit just right, and the Lord grants me an extra day somewhere along uh, the, the path here. And maybe, maybe you have that fear as well, that the fear of an unfinished checklist. Right? And... I think for me, it's, it's this, this, this fear that, that a, a failure, fear of, of not accomplishing all that I desire to accomplish in, in life. And, and I'm sure some of you struggle with that as well. There's a, there's a scene in the, the book, The Two Towers, one of the volumes in Lord of the Rings, where one of the characters is asked what she's afraid of. And she says, a cage, she said, to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. And, and maybe you identify with that. I mean, maybe you don't want to grab a sword and slay mythical beasts like she did. But may, maybe you, you have this, this fear, not just of an unfulfilled checklist, but of an unfulfilled life. There, there's so much you want to accomplish. And sometimes maybe it even causes you worry or concern that you're not going to have the ability to accomplish all in life that you desire to accomplish all that you desire to fulfill. And there are a couple things to think about as we get ready to turn to this text. First, I, I hope this is encouraging. God is going to accomplish through us all that he desires to accomplish. The psalmist in Psalm 138, verses 7 and 8 says, Though I walk, though I walk in the midst of trouble, 
you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So even though we're we're walking sometimes in the the midst of trouble, what does the psalmist say? He says, I I have confidence that the Lord will fulfill his, his purpose for me. He won't forsake the work of his hands. God is going to fulfill all in your life that he desires to fulfill. All of his purposes for you will be completed. Now, the other truth to think about, of course, is that he won't always use the means we might expect to accomplish that purpose that he has for you. The means that he may use to accomplish his purposes may surprise us. So, for example, if he desires our sanctification, he may place you in the midst of a healthy family that loves you, mom and dad love you and love the word of God and instruct you in that. That may be part of his purpose for you. Or he might place you in a family that doesn't love the Lord. And he might use that to sanctify you, to strengthen you, to cause you to to rely upon him more fully. Another means that he might use to accomplish his purposes for you is, as we see in this text, a government. God might actually use the government to accomplish some of his plans for your life. That's what we see happening here in this passage, and it's it's a very surprising thing. Here's the the main idea that I want us to, to think about this morning. God will fulfill every plan he has for your life, and as we see this morning, he may even use the government to do so. We don't need to be concerned about the reality that he will accomplish his purposes. We don't always know the means. We can simply trust in the certainty that he will do so. We're going to look here this morning, we're going to first of all talk about the the worry of a life unfulfilled, and then we're going to talk about the comfort of a sovereign God, the the mercy of God's comfort, and then we're going to go into more detail and kind of think a little bit about how God sometimes uses the, the government to accomplish his gospel mission. So God's going to fulfill every plan he has for your life, and he may even use the government to do so. That's kind of what we're talking about this morning. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to verse 12 of Acts 23, and let's remember where we are. In fact, I'm going to go a couple of chapters earlier, and let's, let's begin talking about the worry of a life unfulfilled. Remember what's happened in Paul's life recently. We capture Paul finishing his third missionary journey, and in Acts chapter 19, he's in Ephesus before he goes towards Jerusalem. And in, in Acts chapter 19, Verse 21, it says, after these events, so this, the, 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 the incident with the sons of Sceva in verses 11 through 20, in verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so from that point on, we know that he is headed to Jerusalem and he has expectations in the spirit that he's going to make his way to Rome. And we see people continuing to affirm that if he goes to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen to him. But Paul says, look, this is what God has, has told me to do. This is what God has told me will happen. In Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 21, he, he talks about, he's talking to the elders in Ephesus, excuse me, verse 22, he says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So I'm, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so he says, I'm, I'm doing what the Holy Spirit has called me to do. From Acts chapter 19, he knows once he goes to Jerusalem, he'll end up in Rome. And Paul is, is confident of God's plan for him. You go down to 
chapter 23 that we're in, and you go to the verse 11, right before the passage that we're looking at this morning. Remember how we ended last week. Look at verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so Paul has this expectation that, okay, I'm going to arrive in Rome. God's going to, to, to bring me there. And the same way that I've testified to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, he's also going to give me the ability to do so in Rome. That's what God has revealed to Paul about his plans for him. And now, it seems like there's a little bit of a, a struggle, a an obstacle to that plan. Look at verse 12 and beyond, and, and, and listen, listen to what happens. In verse 12, it says it's day. So remember, he had appeared before the Sanhedrin at night. The Lord comforts him. And then we come to the next day. And there are some Jews that have bound together and have made a, a plot and made an oath that they won't eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. And it says in verse 13, there are about uh, more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. And then after they, as they make this vow, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. They go to the chief priests and the elders, and they say, look, this is what we've done. This is verse 14. We've strictly bound ourselves by an oath. We're not going to taste any food until we've killed Paul. Now here's where you come in. What we want you to do is this. We want you to call the tribune, call to him and say, look, uh, we, we have some more questions for Paul. We, we want to talk to him more about some, some of the issues that we're struggling with. We want to get a more careful understanding of what the issues are. We've calmed down. We promised no more riots this time. And uh, we want to bring him and, and talk to him more. And, 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 the, and the, the 40 who have bound themselves with this oath say, look, don't worry. Before he gets anywhere near you, we'll kill him. The, you, you won't be implicated in this at all. Now, this, obviously, is an incredibly wicked plot, right? First of all, it's murder, right? This is not allowing justice to play out. Secondly, it involves a widespread participation in this miscarriage of justice. It's a conspiracy. You have over 40 people who've bound themselves this oath, and they're implicating the leadership. It's, in terribly, it's, it's a terrible miscarriage of justice. And then it requires deceit and lying, right? In other words... These people who claim to be so upset at Paul for breaking the law, God's law, are involved in, in terrible transgressions of, of God's law, both the, the letter and the spirit of the law. Remember what the writer of, of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 6. There are, he talks about the seven things that are an abomination to God. And, and listen to those seven things. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I mean, it's like they've got seven for seven there, right? All the things that the Lord hates, uh, conspiracies and shedding innocent blood, uh, arrogance and uh, deceit and, and spreading false lies and discord. I mean, they're doing all those things. These guys are committed to living in a, in a way that's an absolute abomination to what God desires. Again, they are not just violating the, the spirit of the law, but even the letter of the law. They who claim to want to uphold God's law and believe that Paul represents a, a threat to God's law are actually in violation of it, right? Now, this would seem to me like a significant obstacle in life. 
you have over 40 people who are dedicated to your destruction. And not just 40 people, over 40 people, also people in leadership who are dedicated to your destruction. I mean, imagine you're a student at school and uh, over 40 of your classmates bind together and they, they get some of the, the teachers and the principal involved and they say, hey, we want to do everything we can to, to cause this kid to fail this class. I mean, and you find out about it. Imagine what an obstacle that would be to your life. Or you have uh, 40 coworkers who bind themselves together and get some of the managers involved and say, look, we are not going to, to rest until you're fired from your job. Or you have over 40 people in church who kind of gather together along with some of the elders and say, we are not going to rest until this person's reputation is destroyed. That would be a good sign it's time to find another church at that point, right? If you ever wondered when to, when to do that, that's, that's a, it's a red flag in a church. Right? That, would, that would cause for a an unpleasant weekend if some of those things happened, right? There'd be some worry. It would be a significant threat. Certainly, if 40 people, over 40 people, has decided they're going to conspire together to, to, to kill you, that would cause you to be concerned about your well-being. There are all sorts of obstacles in life, right? Some small some large. I mean, some, maybe you have a small obstacle in life. You have, you have a goal. Maybe that's like a health goal. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this health thing, and, and it kind of gets derailed, and that can cause some discouragement. Or maybe there's a, a financial setback in your life, and it, 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 it's this obstacle. You had this plan, and, and now there's this obstacle that's financial. Or, or maybe there's a, a huge, a life-changing event. You, you have a home, and you lose the, the home that you had thought you were going to live the rest of your life in. I remember we were in, uh, my family, when we were in uh, we live in San Antonio, and I was in fourth grade, and my dad and, and mom just bought this house, and it was this, 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 this house, and we were like, oh man, the big backyard and all these things, and we thought, this is the house that we're going to grow up in and go through high school, and the month they bought the house, my dad had to, to change jobs and move to Houston, and so it was just this, you know, very disorienting time as a, as a young kid. Maybe some of you have been through that, or you've been in this situation where you, you have a relationship with someone, you, you, you like this girl, and you think, okay, uh, this is the one, and, and you have this, this vision of, of what your life is going to look like with this person, and, and, and suddenly uh, she says, you know, the, the, the way you feel about me is not the way I feel about you, and uh, this, this life that you had envisioned for the two of you together, she says, that's not the life I have envisioned for me, and, and it's this, this terribly disorienting thing, right? Or, or maybe you've already begun that life with someone and they say, I, I, I don't want to be in a relationship with you any longer. It, it's terrible, right? It's this incredible obstacle to, to this life that you believe that you're going to live. Or maybe you've had a health diagnosis and you, and you had this vision of glorifying God in this way and walking this path and, and suddenly there's this obstacle and, and that's not going to be the case any longer. You had this vision for what a fulfilled life would look like and, and that's not going to be what your life looks like. And, and by the way, of course, many of us have different definitions about what a fulfilled life even means. Maybe for you, a fulfilled life means having a, a family and, and the, the family looking a certain way. And as this obstacle takes place in your life, you're like, okay, this, this is not going to happen anymore. I'm not going to have what I thought was going to be a fulfilled life. Or maybe it's reaching some sort of pinnacle in your career and something happens. And you realize, okay, this I don't think I'm going to have the fulfilled life that I thought I was going to have in terms of my career any longer. Or maybe it's 
Maybe it's some sort of financial security. I know many, many of us are just going through some tough financial times right now. And we, we, uh, we had a situation this past week with some house repairs. And I had this thought. I thought, man, what would it look like to just never worry about finances, right? You know, that, that would, maybe that would be a fulfilled life. But then I realized I don't, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't worry about finances, right? I mean, no matter, no matter what you're worrying about, in terms of your finances, that the person who has twice as much as you is just worrying about something twice as big. I mean, it's just, a, it's never ending, right? Or maybe for you, a fulfilled life means traveling or, or accomplishing something of, of historical significance. There's a fear that many of us have of an unfulfilled life and as, as we go through life and we have this vision of what a fulfilled life would look like, some obstacle takes place and we realize, okay, this, this may not happen and, there, and there's worry, there's, there's stress, there's anxiety. Paul never seems to struggle with that. He doesn't seem to, to, to be worried about these threats. Now, now why is that? I think it's because he defines a fulfilled life a, a little bit differently, sig- significantly differently. And let's turn our attention to that. Let, let's talk about the comfort of a sovereign God. And look at verses 16 through 21. We don't know a lot about Paul's family, but uh, apparently uh, Paul had a sister. And maybe whenever he moved to Jerusalem, the, the family moved to, to Jerusalem as, as well. And uh, the, uh, the, the sister is married and has a child and this this nephew. The word that's used to describe him is a word that be, would be used to describe a, a young man in his late, late teens or, or 20s. So what happens is, in verse 16, this nephew of Paul's hears about their ambush. And so he, by God's sovereign hand, is, is able to understand what's taking place and and perhaps he had a, a friend whose dad was one of the, the 40 involved in, in this conspiracy or whatever. And so he hears about this, and he goes to Paul. He enters the barracks, and he, he tells Paul. Paul must have been staying in one of the areas of the barracks. It was a little bit nicer. He's being afforded some luxuries as a Roman citizen that the average person who was imprisoned might not uh, have. And so Paul calls the centurion over and says, hey, I want you to take this young man to the tribune, and he has something to tell him. And because of Paul's status, the centurion says, okay, I will do it. Verse 18, he takes the young man to the tribune, the centurion does, and he says, Paul, the prisoner, uh, wants me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. The tribune takes the young man by the hand and says, privately, tell me what you want to tell me. Obviously, he realizes that there's something going on here that needs some discretion, and the nephew tells the, the tribune what's going on in verse 20 and following. He says, look, the Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow. They're going to pretend that they want to ask him some more questions. Really, they have bound themselves, over 40 of them have bound themselves with an oath to kill him. Don't listen to them. They're, they're ready, waiting for your consent. Now, as we come to verse 21, we don't know exactly how everything is going to pan out, but what do we see? we see that God's sovereign hand is at work. What he's promised to do in verse 11, he's going to bring about. He's already moving the pieces in place to, to bring about 
his plan. We see here a, a key answer to the question, why isn't Paul worried? Why, why doesn't Paul stress out? Why, why isn't Paul anxious about what's going to happen? Paul trusts in the one who has made the promise. So we think about Paul's response here and throughout the book of Acts, we, we gain an understanding into, into why he, he doesn't worry. He trusts the one who's in control. Whenever the, the family and I play board games together, uh, I, I both love it and hate it, right? I, I love spending time with, with the family, but I can also get very, very, uh, maybe, maybe some of you feel this as well when you play a board game. There's just a, a level of stress, and the level of stress is based upon not knowing what's going to happen next, right? There, there's a lack of ability to control everything. And, you know, sometimes I can make these decisions as we're playing the, these board games and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make this decision and this decision, and, and the likelihood of this happening when we roll the dice is, is way higher than the likelihood of this happening, and so I, th- this is going to go well. But there's still this, this tension because you don't know exactly how every roll of the dice is going to go. And sometimes in our family, um, our dice do not understand statistics and uh, so they often do things that statistically they should not be doing. It can cause me some great frustration. I think, I think my children are using magic sometimes, or maybe a miracle. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying it is a miracle, but I'm not saying it's not either, the way that sometimes my sons can roll the dice. Right? There's angst because you can't control those things. I think that's true just of so much of life, right? The lack of control over our circumstances combined with the lack of trust in God who can control the circumstances can call it, cause us angst and worry. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, and, and maybe this is encouraging to, to you. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I, I, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So these birds aren't worrying about the future, and yet God takes care of them. Are you not of more value than they? And and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And there's the heart of the issue, right? The comfort of a sovereign God comes to, to those who are trusting him by faith. They're believing that he has the power to do what he said he's going to do and to accomplish the things he's going to accomplish. He says in verse, Jesus continues in verse 31 in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's a couple of principles, I think, that comfort us when our plans are threatened. When we have a specific definition of what a life unfulfilled looks like and not necessarily a biblical definition of an unfulfilled life, here's some things that I think help us. One, we recognize God does have a plan and a purpose for our life, right? 
God does have a plan and a purpose for your life. In Isaiah 43, 7, he says, I've created you for my glory. I've I've formed and made you. Ephesians chapter 2, as he talks about uh, rescue, as Paul talks about God rescuing us from our, our sins and how we were dead in our trespasses. And he talks about how we're made alive in Christ and how we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He comes to verse 10. He says, For where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has purposes for your life, plans for you to, to walk in his purposes that were, that were planned b- before we were even born, before the creation of the universe. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 16, about our days, he says to to God, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God had every day, every moment of our lives planned before we were born. So God has a plan for your life. We also see that God's plans in Scripture, we have we have faith because Scripture tells us that God's plans for our life will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God has a plan, and God will do all that it takes to fulfill that plan. And the third thing we think about here is God's past faithfulness to us, should motivate present trust and obedience. As right now we we live in this this time of uncertainty, we think about God's past faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of his people. And we say, okay, right now I I don't understand how God's going to work all this out, but I I have have these over 40 people who are desiring my ruin, but right now I I think about God's faithfulness, and so I, I trust and his future plans for me. I have confidence. Now, not all of your plans for your life will be fulfilled. There's no guarantee of that. I mean, first of all, you have too many plans for your life. You can't be a ballerina, cowboy, astronaut, teacher, heart surgeon, mommy. I mean, time is too finite. You know, all the things you desire for your life aren't going to take place necessarily. I struggle with that, right? But here's, here's what God can promise you and, and the beauty of Scripture's encouragement to you. Our life, your life, will not be one millisecond short of the time span that God has allotted for you to accomplish all of his purposes for you. Neither in terms of, of time or resources will your life come short in what God will provide you to be faithful to what he's called you to do. I, I hope that's comforting for those of you who may have troubled hearts this morning. As you think about the stress of life, think about the uncertainty of the future, God will not let your life or the resources you need fall short. God's purposes may be different than ours, and yet he'll fulfill all of his purposes for you. Again, as I've mentioned, you know, I, I 
I enjoy thinking about productivity and, and how to how to accomplish things and tasks and, and, and how to cram as much as you can in a God-glorifying way into an hour. You know, those, those things kind of interest me. Uh, one, in fact, a person was talking to me recently, and they said, hey, do you remember that time at, at, the re- at a retreat you spoke on uh, productivity and, and how that message really f- fell flat? I said, well, I remember the first part. I didn't know it fell flat. And he goes, oh, yeah, it was a bomb. Oh, okay. Um, thank you for letting me know that uh, 10 years later. But um, glad you, memorable, right? Memorable. Take, take the win. But I, <laughs> in risk of continuing to ca- cause uh, flat messages, uh, here, here's one of the quotes I had from that time. It, it's a book, uh, What's Best Next? I think it's the book on productivity for Christians. And Matt Perman in the book writes something that's comforting to me. Hopefully it's comforting to you as well if, if you struggle with this. As you think about the worry of unfulfilled, unfulfilled life and the comfort we can take. In, in God's plan for us. He says this. Is he, he's talking about how we struggle to have peace of mind and somehow, sometimes we make productivity the test for peacefulness. He says, making our peace of mind dependent upon what we do, like keeping an inventory of our work, is ultimately a law-based approach to the Christian life. Just like basing our acceptance by God on our good works is a law-based approach to justification. Ongoing peace of mind comes through faith in Christ expressed in day-to-day life. Let me say that again. Ongoing peace of mind comes through faith in Christ expressed in day-to-day life. This is the kind of peace that can endure even when everything is going haywire and we are simply unable to keep up with things. Why? Because it is not based on us. Just as we do good work from justification rather than for justification, we are able to do good works from peace rather than for peace. That's the encouragement of a sovereign God, and that's the encouragement I think Luke wants us to have as we look at over 40 people and chief priests and elders desiring to to see Paul dead. In the midst of that, Paul can have comfort because he trusts in a sovereign God that is not going to let his life fall one millisecond short of God's purposes for it. The same is true for you and me. Let's think now a little bit about a strange means that God might use to accomplish his purpose. Let's talk about the gospel mission for the government. Again, I think this section of the book of Acts is talking about the government and Christians' response to the government. It's, it's, it's doing some interesting things here. And we see in verses 22 through, 20, 22 through 35, this tribune responding in a very interesting way. The, the Roman government is essentially helping fulfill God's gospel mission for Paul. The tribune gets to work. He's just heard the nephew say these things. And in verses 22 through 24, he says, okay, we're going to provide the means necessary to keep Paul safe. It's exactly what the government should do. He says, look, young man, don't tell anyone you talk to me. And then he says, centurions, come here. The two of the centurions come here. He says, I want you to get 200 soldiers ready. And then I want 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. I want you guys to, to go and make sure that Paul gets to Caesarea safely. That's about half of the soldiers at this tribune's command he is dedicating to keeping Paul safe. The goal is to get Paul to Caesarea, to the governor. So Claudius Lysias is, is done messing around with these Jews in Jerusalem that are trying to have Paul killed. He says, we're going to make sure you get to Caesarea and the governor the, the, the provincial authority there can deal with this. 
And we'll talk more about Felix next week, Lord willing. And then uh, Claudius Lysias, this tribune, writes a letter to the governor. Look at verses 25 through 30. And it's kind of interesting how he words uh, what happened. As you read it and compare it to what actually happened, you see some discrepancies. And he says in verse 26, <coughs> excuse me, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. And listen to how he describes what happened. He goes, uh, this guy, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him because I, you know, I knew that he was a Roman citizen. That's not the exact order of the details, right? The exact order of the details was this guy was about to be killed by a mob. I was trying to calm things down. Thought I'd get some things out of him by beating him. Almost started beating him, and I accidentally found out that he was a Roman citizen. That's not the way he presents it, but that's, or that's not the way that it happened. Uh, but he presents it a little bit differently. He makes himself look good. Hey, uh, hey, Governor, I was trying to protect the Romans because, you know, that's how I roll. And then in verse 28, he says, Look, I, I was desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him to their council. I found out that he was being accused about questions of their law. But, and this is very interesting, right? This shows that Paul's strategy has worked. He says, but he wasn't charged with, he was charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And uh, then I found out there was this plot against him, and so I sent him to you. In verse 31, the soldiers do what they're supposed to do. They take him to Antipatris, and then uh, he, they stay there. That's, I think, a, a, a journey of about 30 miles or so. And then the, the foot soldiers return to the barracks, and the guys on the horses continue to make way to Caesarea. Now, he arrives there. Felix reads the governor. Uh, Felix reads the letter. And says, okay, we'll, we'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive and he's in Herod's praetorium. It's really an amazing moment in the story, the way that the Roman government protects Paul. And I think that we see here that, that God can use the government to accomplish his gospel mission. That's, that's a, a good thing. And it's something that we should desire as, as Christians as well. God's expectation of a government is that it pro pro would provide a society in which the gospel can be heard and, and lived out. I think that's a reasonable expectation that Christians should have for their government. Now, I'm not advocating, as we talk about the gospel mission for the government, I'm not ad advocating what some people call theonomy, or maybe you've heard the phrase Christian reconstructionism. That's a belief, as, as Tom Schreiner puts it, uh, theonomists believe that, uh, that nations or states should be ruled by the standards of the Old Testament civil law. So a theonomist would say, okay, here's what God said to Moses about how a government should work. These were the crimes. This is, these were the, the, the specific punishments for these crimes. These were the, the, the legal rules. And so we need to take those, and all societies everywhere need to, to have these same rules, we would say, no, that's, that's not biblical, right? Uh, scripture tells us that, the, that, that being under the Mosaic law is over. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Uh, Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law. So we don't believe that we are still bound by the Mosaic law any longer, right? This is the, we're in the time of the new covenant, now, the laws under the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, contained what we call, uh, what theologians call positive laws. 
So positive laws are, are laws that are given to a specific group of people at a specific group of time. And under God's, the, God's covenant that they find themselves, these laws are given. And they're obligated to keep these, these positive laws. And these positive laws are not required of people to obey before they were given. Or when the, the covenant comes to an end, they're not required to keep on keeping them. So, for example, um, the dietary laws. Before those dietary laws were given, the, the positive laws, a person didn't have that, that law. They weren't required to keep those dietary laws. Once the law came to a conclusion, they weren't required to keep on doing these dietary laws. Or, um, or, or think of the example of, of circumcision, okay? Before Abraham, people weren't required to be circumcised in order to be re- in relationship with God. Once Abraham came, and here's how you become part of God's people, God's covenant people, they were required to be circumcised. But it was temporary, right? We wouldn't require people to become circumcised, become American citizens today. It was a positive law. It was given for a specific group of people at a specific time. So you might say, well, okay, if, if that's true, does that mean, that, that mean there's, there's nothing for us in the Mosaic Law? There, there's nothing that we find out about God and his character as we come to the Old Testament? And, and the answer, of course, is no. God's moral law is, is eternal. People before the Abrahamic covenant, people before the Mosaic law were given, were required to obey God's moral law. After the end of the Mosaic covenant, after the end of the old covenant and the new covenant, that moral law continues. And so God's moral law kind of serves as a foundation for all the other laws that are given at a, in a specific culture. So here's God's moral law, something like don't lie. Now here's how that works in this specific covenant. Now, you say, okay, what, what does all that mean? Well, God doesn't hold people responsible for laws that haven't been given to them. We're not going to require Americans to follow the dietary laws of the Israelites. We're not going to make people put fences on the roof like they were in the old covenant. We're not going to reintroduce stoning or allow people to sell themselves into indentured servitude. But, as Jesus says, we, we can't put new wine and old wineskins, but we can look at God's moral law and say, okay, what, what does God hold people responsible for it th- throughout time? And then we can look at what the New Testament says about what the church should expect of, of the government. So, for example, turn over to Romans 13. And in Romans 13, we see that God has certain expectations for a, a government in this, this new covenant that we find ourselves in. And these, these are things, no matter what culture we're a part of, we should expect a government to do. He says, let every person, this is Romans 13, 1, be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In 
1 Peter chapter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so as we talked about last week, we believe that as Christians, as God gives us the ability to influence our society, we want to do so. But the question is, okay, well, in what ways do we influence our, our society? Is it reasonable to want everyone to obey the Old Testament dietary laws? Is it reasonable for us to want uh, to force everyone to become Christians? And we see, as we look at Scripture, no, that's not God's expectation here in the New Covenant. God's expectation is we have the ability to influence our government as we influence them to, to create a society in which the gospel can be heard in which the gospel can be lived out. So here, here are a couple specifics, right? What do we expect? What are reasonable expectations of a secular government? Well, and some of these are overlapping. We expect the government to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. That's, that's not an unreasonable expectation. We should strive for laws that, that fulfill that. If you are a wicked person, you should have different expectations of what's going to happen to you if your wickedness is exposed than if you're an innocent person and your innocence is exposed. And of course, in our culture today, sometimes we struggle with that. The, the good is called evil. The evil is called good. The, the wicked are rewarded. The, the innocent are, are punished. That Those things should not be. And as Christians, we should work to cause that to, to be the way God would desire. We want a government that restrains evil. It kind of goes with the idea of punishing the guilty, but it, but it goes beyond that. We want laws and systems constructed. We want there to be a recognition that, hey, if, if I'm a person that lives a wicked life, bad things are going to happen to me in this society. We're not going to celebrate it. It's going to be uh, something that, that isn't good. And so the laws and the structure of society restrain people. They don't desire to do evil because they recognize, even if they're not believers, they recognize that the, the consequences will be so unpleasant. So they, we restrain evil. We, we pursue justice. We want the, not as we've talked about before in terms of justice, we want the end goal to be the desire to arrive at the truth of a situation. And we want the means by which we arrive at that end to be fair and, and equal for all. We don't want there to be two systems of, of government and, and justice, one for the powerful and one for the weak. We want there to be, to be equity in terms of how we apply justice. We want a, a government that keeps the peace, right? We want to be a, a government that supports those in law enforcement and puts proper restraints on those in law enforcement. And whenever people are wicked we, we, uh, in law enforcement, we deal with that. But we want to be a society that supports those who are enforcing the law and keeping the peace. And we want to create conditions, right? We want to create conditions in which the, the family can flourish, right? Think about the bill that's going through the, the Senate right now, the Respect for Marriage Act, that represents really just a, a thumbing at uh, our noses at God's design for marriage. And the things we know about families, we, we know all people know by common grace, have known for thousands of years. And we, we don't want to support that. We want to support a, a government that creates conditions for God's design for a family to, to flourish. So that's, those are reasonable things, I think, without us becoming a theocracy which is often leveled against us, I think those are reasonable things for Christians to desire. A place where, as again, Paul tells Peter, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way.
as we seek to live a godly life, the government doesn't punish us for doing so, but allows us to do so in peace and allows us to proclaim the gospel. You say, well, Daniel, let me throw out a crazy scenario to you. What if we have a bad government at times, right? Just stay with me here. What if that ever happens? Does that mean God isn't at work? No, of course not. Remember in chapter 12, chapter 12 of Acts, the persecution that, that arises in the church? That's still God's plan. That's still fulfilling God's purpose. Even a bad government is ultimately God's government in the sense that it answers to him. Even Herod, as he persecutes the church, accomplishes God's purpose and proclaims the gospel. There's a gospel mission for the government that God will fulfill. I don't know what you're worried about this morning. I don't know what you're fearing. There are many things that we can fear. Maybe you're fearing a lack of control over your life right now. There's a financial burden, a family burden. Maybe you're afraid of the government this morning. Right? Maybe there's a fear, a worry. This story, I think, helps us take comfort. Brothers and sisters, God will not let his plan his purpose for you fail. Not one iota of the things that God desires to accomplish through you will fail. All of God's good purposes for you will stand, both now and into eternity. What a beautiful comfort for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that you have sustained our lives to this point this morning. For whatever reason, we are still alive. We are still on this earth. You have not yet returned. And we recognize that you have done so in your kindness and grace to allow us to continue to fulfill your purposes for us. Father, by your enabling work, we trust in you to give us the strength to do the things that we must do. And we recognize that some of the things that we would desire to do will not be accomplished, that some of the plans that we have will not come to fruition. Give us comfort in that and give us, give us peace as we think about your plans for us and help us to do those through the work of your spirit. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.